Welcome to Venturesome, the podcast about being fiercely ambitious, brave, and curious. I'm Rachel Esterline Perkins, and we're talking about how to get a step ahead in your career. This podcast is all about taking risks, overcoming uncertainty, and being creative in our lives and careers. I recently had the opportunity to chat with Elizabeth Segrin, author of The Rocket Years, How Your 20s Launched the Rest of Your Life. The book is filled with data and stories about how your career, hobbies, relationships, and more in your 20s ultimately impacts the rest of your life. Even if you're out of your 20s, The Rocket Years helps you think critically and holistically about the life you're building. While we only touch on a few elements in our interview, such as career, hobbies, and politics, Elizabeth's book also discusses fitness, marriage and family, friendship, and faith as areas of your life influenced in your second decade. Check out links and additional content related to this episode at VentureSomePod.com. And because this is a brand new podcast, please take a moment to leave a review after the episode. Let's jump in. Your book, Rocket Years, is about how one decade can have a transformative effect on our lives. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and why you wrote it? Absolutely. Yes, it's called The Rocket Years, How Your 20s Launched the Rest of Your Life. And I basically came up with the idea when I was in my early 30s. And I woke up one day and I realized that so many parts of my life had formed and and seemed like they had fallen into place. You know, I had found a job that I really love and I had been in it for several years. I had recently gotten married and I had a small child. And it occurred to me that this life that I have is going to be my life for the next couple of decades. And what was really interesting to me was that I couldn't pinpoint the exact moments that I had created this life that I have. And so I wanted to really explore the big decisions that we make in our 20s and how they play out in the decades to come to understand my own trajectory and just to understand in general, you know, how this process works, how these decisions that we make when we're young end up shaping our entire lives. The title of the book really comes down to this analogy that I have, which is that when you're in your 20s, it's, it's like you're a rocket that has just taken off and any change in your flight path in your 20s does not feel like a big deal at all. Whether you quit a job or uh, break up with this boyfriend or that one, all of those decisions don't feel like they're very significant. But decades from now, it could be the difference between landing on Mars or Saturn. And I want to say the book is great even for those of us who are in our 30s because I'm 32. I think Mm -hmm. even in your 30s, you're still evolving in a lot of the areas that you talk about in the book, like hobbies, for example, or fitness. You're not done in your 20s, but I think it does set you up for success. Totally. And I, I mean, in many ways, I think that I wrote the book for myself in a lot of ways, right? Like, I am now in my late 30s um, and I've spoken to people, you know, in their 40s and beyond who have read the book. And it's really interesting to go back and look at the decisions that we made in those years and to think a little bit about them. You know, what what was driving us? What what are we really passionate about? What did we really care about before we had gotten uh, locked into these paths? 
because I think that it's never too late to change our course and to change direction. And I think there's something about reconnecting with who we were in our 20s when the world seems so open and free that allows us to really get back on track and really uh, create lives that are more aligned with who we are. And in your book, you said people who thrive simply refuse to accept situations that make them miserable. They choose to keep learning, growing, and working toward happiness all their lives. And I love that because I think it's really true. How can young professionals build that grit and resilience you need to achieve happiness while learning and growing? Being in your 20s, I think, is a very difficult time in our lives. It's both really exciting because there is so much that is unwritten, right? And so we have so many different options and we can explore lots of different things. And I also think that it's a rare opportunity in life to make mistakes and be free to try things that seem risky. And so those are all great things. But it's also a period where things often don't go according to plan, where we have all of these lofty dreams about what it is that we really want. And then we, we go out and we try them and they don't end up panning out the way that we think that it's going to. So here's an example from my own life. You know, when I was in my uh, late teens and early 20s, my big dream was to become an academic and to go to grad school and to pursue a study of ancient Indian literature. And so I did that. You know, I went off and I, and I got into a PhD program at Berkeley and I was well on track to becoming a professor. And then when I entered the job market, I discovered that there actually were no jobs in my field, very, very few jobs in my field. Um, and in the year that I graduated, basically none. And so I had to bounce back and try and figure out what it is that I really wanted to do in life. And I think that this is a common story, right? That we start our 20s with all of these hopes and dreams and ambitions and this notion of what it is that we want from life. And then when the rubber hits the road in our 20s, things, things begin to fall apart. The relationships that we're in sometimes don't pan out. The careers that we start off in don't work out the way that we hope that they will. There's a lot of difficulty in failure. And I think that it is what we do in those moments of things not working out that ends up defining us not just in terms of you know, what we end up choosing as a career or a life partner. It also ends up determining the kind of people that we will be in life, whether we are people who can bounce back, whether we're people who are resilient, whether we're people who are constantly on this quest to make our lives align with our values and our passions. And so in my case, you know, I had this turning point in my mid-20s when it was very clear that my plan A was not working out. It also coincided with a moment where, you know, the relationship I was in, this long-term relationship also did not work out. And so I spent a few years feeling a little bit lost and trying to figure out my new direction. What I really discovered is that there are actually many ways for us to be happy and to find careers and relationships that align with who we are. There is not just one right path for us, right? There are many possible paths. And I think the key is to keep believing that there is a dream job for us out there and that we just need to keep finding it. Like we, we shouldn't settle for anything less than a job that really aligns with who we are. The same applies to relationships. You know, there's not just one person who can make us happy. We need to be committed to this path of trying to find our soulmate, right? Somebody who really understands us and gets us. 
And if we continue on this path, if we continue and when we focus on pursuing these things, it is the people who continue pursuing that end up finding the right person and the right career for themselves. And that was just a really important lesson to me. And that's a key part of what I'm saying in my book. It's that you know, the data does show that people who pursue this concept of a dream job and people who pursue this concept of a soulmate, it's the people who focus on these things that a large percentage of them actually end up finding, you know, the person that they want and the career that they want. So it's absolutely important for us to pick ourselves up and continue believing that there's something out there for us on both of these fronts. And of the eight areas you talk about in your book, do you think that there's one or two or three that are more important to focus on in your 20s? Or is it a balance? What do you think about that? Yeah. So in the book, I I really do cover a whole spectrum of things. I think that the average person is already focused on a couple of things in their 20s. Based on my interviews with lots of people, I think most people are primarily focused on their career in their 20s. And that makes a lot of sense because for those of us who are, you know, in our 20s and 30s today, we're going to be spending more time on the workforce than any other generation that has come before us. So it's absolutely important to find work that is meaningful. I think a lot of people are also focused on creating a family. So finding a partner and then thinking about whether or not they want to have children as part of that family equation. So those are things that people are already thinking about, and I certainly provide as much advice and insight as I can on those topics. I think that one of the big discoveries for me in the book is that there are many things that we're not really thinking about in our 20s, but that actually have an enormous impact on our lifelong health and happiness. So things like your circle of friends, your passion projects and hobbies that you're pursuing, your physical fitness, these are sort of secondary type Uh, concerns for us. But all of the research shows that ultimately, you know, it's people who have diverse interests outside of work and their hobbies that tend to have happier, healthier lives, right? So people who have hobbies end up being more productive in their careers. Uh, They tend to have better relationship. They tend to, you know, have less stress and, and general like levels of happiness that are really surprising. And so if I had known about that, I think I would have spent more time in my 20s nurturing these things that would not end up becoming my career. And that's an important thing to think about. So I also thought the data about millennials being willing to take a pay cut to work at a company whose mission and values match their own was really interesting. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something I've heard from a lot of young professionals. And so how can young professionals find that balance between being able to pay their bills but also feeling good about the job that they're doing. I think that just to take a little step back, I think that what's really interesting is that unlike uh, previous generations, this generation, so millennials and Gen Z are not just interested in finding work that pays the bills, but in finding work that is really an expression of who they are. And that's a a very unique uh, situation, right? And And it's an entirely new situation. I think we're really lucky that we can think about work not just as something that's functional, right, as just a way to support ourselves and our families. We can now think of work as a way to express who we are and to, to pursue the parts of ourselves that we enjoy the most, so, so the skills that we enjoy using. We are extremely fortunate to be people who have this option, right? And so when we're growing up, millennials and Gen Z, I think, you know, for many of us, we were told, go out there and find your dream job. 
And so that has been part of, you know, the way that we've conceived of work throughout our lives. The problem is that nobody really gives us much of a, a roadmap or uh, a definition of, you know, of what a dream job is, how likely you are to find it, what it looks like when you're in it, right? And so in my book, really, I spend a whole chapter talking about how it's actually a very complex process trying to find this dream job. It's not as easy as, you know, our college counselors told us that it was going to be. And often the first thing that you try isn't going to work. And so, yes, yeah, so, so really our 20s are about experimenting and, and kind of taking different stepping stones that will help us to, towards finding a dream job. I think for most people, and the data backs this up, it is far more important to find work that is meaningful to us and that makes us feel like we are contributing to the world. That is far more important than, you know, the salary that we get at the, you know, at the end of the month, right? The downside to that, to this way of thinking, so, so there, there are plenty of upsides to this way of thinking, right? I think, I think it's very, very, it's a good thing that we are trying to find work that makes us feel like we're contributing to the world. I think having a job that does that is better for our mental health and just better for our overall like life happiness. That's good. The downside is that it is easy for companies to exploit workers who are primarily in that job because they feel passionate about it than because they're looking for a salary. In the previous way of operating, the way our parents did, if the salary wasn't good, uh, the, the worker would leave. And now we're in a situation where if the work is meaningful enough or if our colleagues are cool enough or if our like, you know, benefits like, you know, are, <laughs> are like, um, you know, our like meeting rooms are like trendy enough or whatever, um, you know, that, that some people may, may not. It's really important for you to understand what the market rate is for your position. It's really important for there to be a lot of wage transparency so that you can talk to your colleagues uh, both in your company and at other companies about what the fair market you know, rate is for your position. It means being willing to advocate for yourself and ask for salary raises at your, you know, your at various negotiations throughout the year and promotions and things like that. And it also means willing to say no to jobs that might be very like meaningful and, and exciting, but will not pay the bills, right? Because I think long-term, there is a risk of you burning out and being miserable and your dream job actually not being kind of a nightmare, right? Uh, if you don't feel like you can, you can live comfortably on your salary. And so I think this is kind of a unique problem for our generation and it's something that we need to be focused on. That said, I do think that there's a lot of data that shows that not focusing primarily on compensation, that's actually a good thing, right? It's about, it's about finding balance, right? I think finding work that you, you feel is meaningful, it's inherently a good thing. So, so that's something that we should keep, we should hold on to. I think that's a, it's fundamentally a good thing. And I think that's a really good point is to make sure that a company isn't taking advantage of the fact that you're passionate about something or that you're young. I had an intern a couple years ago who came to me and was really excited about a job offer at a company that she wanted to work at. It was in Chicago and they offered her 27,000 a year. And I was like, can you even pay rent in Chicago at that amount? And I said, I know you're excited, but you need to go back and ask for more. And she did. And they actually revoked the offer and she was really upset. And I said, you don't want to work at a place that is going to do that anyway. You know, if they're going to treat you like that mm -hmm. in this interview process, 
this isn't the right job for you anyway. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, you can end up feeling pretty crappy and miserable at a job that might ordinarily be exciting to you if you feel like you're employer doesn't value you, right? You know, compensation is like a measure of how well you are valued. And I think that over time, like even though a job might might sound exciting, like you're working with really cool clients and you're getting to do all this creative work, that will wear off when you realize that in fact, you know, they just see you as a cog in the machine and they're trying to essentially like benefit from your creativity without compensating you adequately. I think ultimately for us, it's about uh, balance, right? And it's about understanding what it is that you really, really want to do. And that can take a, a while, right? I mean, it can, t- it can take you a while to just even figure out what you're good at and what you really want to do. But it's also figuring out how much your, your time is worth. And as you're figuring things out in your 20s, job hopping has become what seems like a norm. It's very common for you to be at a job for a couple of years and then move on to another job. How long do you think it takes for someone to really find what's the right career path for them? And how can you know if you need to make a move, if it's time for you to hop jobs, or maybe you're just facing a bump in the road and you're feeling frustrated? This is an interesting question because there's actually a lot of data to back this up, right? And so I think a a lot of the job hopping that people do tends to happen in their 20s. And I think that there are several reasons for that. One is just that, you know, as, as I've been saying, you know, it actually takes a while to figure out what you want. And each job that you're taking in your 20s is helping you gather some information. So, you know, you might work at a job for a year, realize that, you know, some parts of that job are really great. So like, for instance, if you're, you know, if you're a PR executive, you know, you might realize that you're actually really, really good at, at brainstorming and coming up with creative ideas for your client. You're actually not that great at all of the data entry <laughs> that you need to do. I'm speaking from personal experience here as somebody who tried PR for a little while. Well, then maybe PR isn't the best way for you to be using those creative talents, right? Like maybe you should be a journalist like I ended up doing, or maybe you should be working at a marketing firm or some sort of ad agency where they can take advantage of those skills. So each job that you do, you're learning something new. I mean, and sometimes it's just a matter of learning things like, oh, actually, I don't like how my manager is treating me at this job. Like every part of this job is pretty great, but I feel like management here really sucks. That's an important thing to learn as you move on to your next job. So in your 20s, the data shows that that job hopping is actually pretty beneficial to you because job hopping allows you to gather a lot of different skills and build out your resume. It helps you increase your salary because traditionally, you know, as you move from job to job, you get a small pay increase. And, you know, as, as you keep doing that over the course of like a decade, you know, you end up with a significantly higher salary. That's pretty good. What happens then is that once you're in your thirties, by the time you're probably in your mid thirties, it becomes far more important for you to develop depths of skills rather than a breadth of skills, right? And so in your 30s, you should be trying to find a career that you can sort of stick in longer term because what that will allow you to do is develop um, a lot of expertise in a very specific thing. And that will, over the course of your career, end up being much more valuable to you. You know, by the time you're in your 40s and 50s, having a lot of in-depth experience in a particular field is incredibly valuable. 
There's also the issue of a lot of HR managers, people who are looking at resumes, they don't hold it against you when you're doing a lot of job hopping in your 20s. By the time you get into your 30s, moving jobs very, very frequently ends up uh, looking like, you know, you're, you're unable to sort of commit and stay focused. So the answer is really that your 20s should be a time for you to explore and job hop. But once you enter your 30s, you should start thinking about focusing and, and finding something that is going to be really satisfying for the long haul. And how would you define frequently? And would you define frequently differently in your 20s versus, say, your 30s and 40s? Yeah, totally. So I think that in general, um, if you're able to stick at a job for a year in your 20s, then that's fine. And then if you decide to leave after a year, most HR people who are looking at resumes don't think that it's weird if you're moving after a year. And in fact, you know, moving every two years or so is the norm in your 20s. Um, And in fact, it's actually kind of a good thing because if you've had like four jobs by the time you're 30 or, or more, like four or five jobs, you, you have a lot of experience. You have more experience than the person who was just to stay at the same job, right? From the time they were in, uh, graduated from college. So that is about normal. And, and in your 30s, things change a bit. So, so I think in your early 30s, continuing on that trajectory of job hopping is seen as okay. Once you enter, you know, about 35 to 40, really it's better for you to sort of be at a job for like five to seven years. That's, a, that's about normal. And so, so I think that that's kind of the, the norms and that's, that's what the industry is, is saying in terms of, you know, what is probably a healthy trajectory. But let me just um, offer the caveat that if you happen to be at a job that you totally love in your 20s, maybe you're just one of the lucky ones. Maybe you have found a career that is really great. I would not recommend leaving a job just for the sake of, you know, following this path if, if it happens to be a job that you're really happy at. By that same token, if something has happened, you know, in your 30s and you discover that actually you had made the wrong choice and you're not in a field that you like and maybe you want to go back to school and you want to try something new, that is perfectly fair. These are just norms based on what the majority of people are doing, and there are always unique cases. But I think it's a good way of thinking about, you know, kind of what you should be shooting for. So life can't be all work and no play, and I really liked the section in your book about hobbies. So can you tell us a little bit about the benefits of having hobbies, especially based off of the data that you have found, and how people can discover some new hobbies? Yeah, totally. I loved writing this chapter because I did not think about my hobbies at all in my 20s. I was just far more focused on my career and on my relationship. But the data shows that people who do hobbies have just much better lives. People who have hobbies are more productive at their jobs, which makes a lot of sense because um, I think it's very easy to get so absorbed with your work that you lose perspective and you lose focus. And people who spend time on things outside of work are able to return to their work with new perspective and feeling refreshed and are less likely to burn out. People who pursue hobbies tend to have lower stress levels, which makes a lot of sense because these hobbies are outlets. They tend to just be like more balanced in terms of like how they perceive themselves and the world. 
Because I think one amazing thing about hobbies is that we don't need to be perfectionists about them. We don't need to be good at them even, right? And while it really matters that you're good at your job, there's something hugely liberating about being able to do something and not really care about what the outcome is, just enjoying the process. So this is absolutely true of myself. So I have started knitting and I'm a terrible knitter. I really suck at knitting, but I, I enjoy it. And it, it, it makes me feel so, so relaxed as I'm doing it. And it allows me to enjoy the process rather than the outcome. And I think that that's just an important life lesson. And it helps me to think about my work in that kind of way, right? Like where sometimes it's just important to enjoy the process. Finally, people who have hobbies tend to be more connected to other people because in a lot of cases, hobbies allow you to connect with other people who pursue those hobbies. And so, you know, even for, I, you know, I spoke to this really interesting guy who is um, an introvert and he, go, you know, he picks hobbies that allows him to, to do things on his own, right? It still allows him to be connected to a community. So for, for instance, one thing that he likes to do is martial art, which is a lot of like, you know, you practicing on your own and being silent, you know, as you're working on these different things. But, you know, he, he was able to be part of various communities because of it. And so, you know, it, it allows people who are extroverted to connect with other people, and it allows people who are introverted to, you know, sort of force them to form community. This ties to another chapter of my book, which is that people who have circles of friends and who are deeply plugged into communities tend to be happier and healthier as well. So yes, if I had known about all of this, I think I would have sort of paid more attention to the things that I was curious about, but that weren't connected to my career. And I would say that during this pandemic, I've had this amazing opportunity to try different things out. And so as I've said, I've gotten into knit all the pandemic things, right? Like I've gotten into knitting, I've done a lot more baking, over the summer, I did a lot of gardening. I've done puzzles. I have done <laughs> all kinds of these things. And I think that I've just been, you know, I, all of these things have made me a lot happier. And so I encourage anybody who is trying to make the most of this time to pursue things that might not have been, you know, that, that you're interested in or excited about, but, you know, but that you, you maybe didn't have time to do before or thought it was kind of frivolous to work on them. Yeah. And I love that you say you can have a hobby and you don't have to be perfect in it because you, you spend so much time focusing on perfection at work. It's nice to have that outlet and even using that different part of your brain. I started watercolor painting recently oh, and I, cool. I've never been artistic or good at drawing or painting. I actually had to withdraw from a drawing class in college because I was so bad and I wasn't <laughs> practicing. So I was too busy doing my internship. And I found these kits through this website called Let's Make Art, and they'll send you the watercolors, these little samples. They'll send you a stencil for you to outline your painting, and then there's a YouTube video that walks you through it. And so at the end, I get something that looks decent compared to probably what I would do on my own, but I also have that excitement of trying something new and the frustration of not being perfect and then telling myself it doesn't matter nobody's going to see it anyway I'm painting in my basement so <laughs> totally and there's um all of this research that shows that there's a lot of similarities between something like a hobby like painting or knitting and meditation right because I think that one of the benefits is that you sort of get absorbed in the process and just giving your mind a break from thinking about all the other nonsense in your life, whether it's your job or, you know, the 
the news or whatever, right? Just having a moment to not think about all of that stuff is can be such a relief. So uh, politics have been front and center, of course, recently. What can young professionals really be doing right now to build themselves in a political sphere, especially since that's something I think a lot of them have become increasingly interested in uh, compared to maybe 10 years ago? Yeah, I think this this was a really interesting chapter for me as well, because the I think the top line thing that I discovered in uh, this chapter is that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of young people are not actually politically engaged. And historically, this has been true. Young people tend to, you know, be focused on their careers, on, on trying to figure stuff out in life. They also tend to have less involvement in the things that matter, you know, politically. So for instance, they, they might not own property. And, you know, when you own property, you start thinking about taxes when you, you know, and, and things like that, right. And like, you know, the potholes in your district. And so you become more engaged that way. So historically, young people have not been that involved in politics. And that has been a huge problem because as a result, they haven't been voting in large numbers for their interests. And that's why, you know, you know, historically, a lot of a political or a lot of policies haven't really been designed for young people. They're not really thinking about things like college debt or, you know, or, or things like, you know, like the federal debt that young people are going to have to pay off, right? Like there's, there's a lot of spending that's happening to make life better now, but that, you know, our generation is going to have to pay for in the future. So I think that this moment that we're in right now is great that, that where people or young people want to get engaged because this is not going to just pay off in this moment. There's a lot of data that shows that people who get involved in politics now when they're young tend to stay politically engaged throughout their lives. And so what this means is that this generation that has you know, risen to the occasion is much more engaged with the political system. We're likely to have an impact on policies for years to come. And, and ho hopefully those policies really reflect who we are, right? Um, so all of that is good news. In terms of how you can get engaged, I think that there's a lot of like opportunities now um, in terms of getting involved in various activist organizations that popped up during the Trump era. But I think the crucial thing is to continue to focus on voting. Because I think that one interesting thing about our era is that there are lots of ways for us to like talk about politics on social media and to feel like we're involved in politics, but, but actually we're just, we're doing very superficial forms of political engagement, right? Like we're, we're reading the news a lot. We're talking to people on Twitter and Facebook. What really matters when, you know, at the end of the day is whether we're voting. And the truth is that in general, young people are still voting in not very high numbers. And so no matter what we end up choosing to do in terms of our political engagement, I think the crucial thing is to always, you know, be trying to, to vote and to get people in our communities to vote because America still has one of the lowest voter turnouts of any democracy in the world. And we should be, you know, trying to change that. Yeah. Turning your talk into action. I like that. Totally. So the Venturesome podcast is all about taking risks. What is some bold Venturesome advice you wish you could give your younger self? Okay. So this is a, this is a huge one for me. When I was in my twenties, I felt all of this pressure to make smart decisions, right? And to do things that would set me up for success in the future. But I was also experiencing the sense of like 
FOMO because part of me also wanted to go out there and not think about my decisions at all and make all of my mistakes and just drop everything and, you know, and just kind of uh, go a little bit wild. Um, and so I did that actually, you know, in my 20s, that, at that moment where my career was not working out and my relationship wasn't working out. I got really overwhelmed. I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm failing myself on so many different levels. So I just like moved to India. I like picked up and I just moved to India and got away from everything and just explored, you know, this village that I was in and backpacked and, and, you know, and getting away from my life actually had this amazing effect, which was that it gave me clarity about what it is that I wanted from life. Getting away from my life for a little while, escaping from it, allowed me to really figure out you know, what I wanted. And I think that this is the most important lesson that I can share with everybody else, which is that one of the biggest tensions in our 20s is this, is this tension between, on the one hand, trying to make smart choices, and on the other hand, being free to make mistakes. And I think that the the thing that we don't get told is that both of those are really, really important parts of our the process, right? It is in making mistakes and it's it, it it's in going out there and exploring the world that we figure out what we want so that when we have to make those decisions, we know what decisions to make. And so if there's one thing that I would advise other people to do is to let yourself experience both of those things, to give yourself the freedom to go out there and make those mistakes and try new things and just explore and not really be on a particular path for a little while so that then you can try and figure out where you want to go. I wish I had done that in my 20s. I wish I hadn't stressed myself out so much trying to make the right choices or feeling guilty when I was you know, off trying to explore the world. I think just kind of being being at peace with both sides of that equation would have just made my life so much happier and you know would have gotten me to the same place. I really appreciate you taking the time today because I think that this book and the messages in the book and you know what you've shared today are so important for the people who are facing kind of this quarter life crisis of what do I do and how do I balance all of the things I should be doing and what even should I be doing? So I really appreciate it. Uh, what's next for you and where can people find out more? Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. So in addition to being the author of The Rocket Years, I'm also a senior staff writer at Fast Company Magazine, where I write about design and art and um, and fashion. So you can find me there. You can also find me at Liz Segrin at, you know, on Instagram um, and on Twitter. So find me in all the socials. Great. I will link to those uh, in the show notes as well so people can find them. Thanks for listening to VentureSome. I'd love to hear from you about the strategies you're using to get a step ahead or topics you'd like to hear me cover on the podcast. You can email me at VentureSomePodcast at gmail.com or reach out on Twitter at VentureSomePod. VentureSome.